Okay, so what makes a gospel work fruitful? What makes a gospel work <laughs> fruitful? I don't know if you've I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks. There have been the, the news of Billy Graham's promotion to glory. And uh, people debated, didn't they, about what made Billy Graham uh, so great? What made him so fruitful? Was it a technique? Uh, was it the right people at the helm? Was it the huge publicity machine that he used to have that would uh, tell people months in advance that he was coming? All the coaches that would travel in different places? What made his work so fruitful? And you can read book after book, um, as a, something I've discovered as a minister, there's always a new book coming out telling you uh, how to do fruitful uh, gospel ministry. Well, this evening we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul thought as he wrote to the church uh, of the Thessalonians. He's reminding them of the, his mission to them. So all the way through you'll notice that he keeps saying, for you yourselves know, brothers, as you know, as you know. All the way through there's that theme of, as you know. And you've got to sort of ask the question, well, if they know all this, then why on earth is he writing to them? Why is he telling them it all again if they already know it? Well, what he's trying to show them is what makes his mission, what makes his gospel ministry so fruitful. Uh, it's a bit like, uh, I don't know if you uh, know, but uh, uh, if you get a lizard, uh, this is, sounds like a strange story, it's not really. If you get a lizard and you put him in a, in a sort of tank and you surround them with uh, flies, uh, unless the flies are alive, you know, the lizard will die. Interesting fact. Surrounded by food, but will die. The reason is that his eyes are trained to see movement. That's what a lizard's looking for. So it can only spot flies that are actually alive. And what Paul is doing here, he's talking them through his ministry to them. He's talking them through his mission to them to alert their eyes to what they could see. You know, was it the way that he spoke? Was it the way that he... Uh, preached was it the way that he he's showing them what it was that made his ministry fruitful so that they can see what's happening in their own ministry in their own mission if you like he wants to show them what there is to notice about good gospel ministry and the reason that he wants to do that is they're now engaged in the same job he is sharing the gospel with people so it's not an apostle's guide if you like to being an apostle and how to do it as an apostle. It's an apostle's guide to a church about how to do fruitful gospel work. So our first heading is genuine fruitful gospel mission. And what we're going to do is work through uh, the verses. He's showing them why his work was not in vain. Why it was uh, fruitful and not a failure. So we see first of all there that... Uh, Genuine, fruitful gospel mission declares confidently, not clandestinely. Let me read to you verse 2 again. I'll read you one as well. But you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. What he's saying here is that they know that he had suffered at Philippi before coming uh, to them in Thessalonica. You know the story, don't you, that he'd been thrown in prison in Philippi and uh, amazingly witnessed to the Philippian jailer. And you, you know the story. But he had actually been thrown in prison. He'd faced persecution. So as he goes to this next town, well, what might Paul think? Well, yeah, you know, it's a bit hard in the last town. Maybe I should just tone it down a little bit. You know, just just take the... the the foot off the pedal. Well, no. 
<clears throat> actually Paul decides that he's still going to declare the gospel boldly. Why is he going to do it boldly? Well, because his boldness was in God. Do you see that there in verse 2? We had boldness in our God to declare. It wasn't that he was confident in himself. He didn't think, oh yes, I've got it all sorted. But he was confident in God. And we see here that real, genuine, fruitful gospel ministry is bold. That's part of what it looked like for Paul to tell the gospel to these people. It doesn't find excuses not to tell the gospel. If you're like, oh, well, you know, raining today, so can't, can't do it today. It doesn't apologise for declaring the gospel. You know, I'm going to tell you some good news, but I'm very sorry. Uh, you know, just, <laughs> just take it uh, as, you, as, you, as it comes. No, he declares it boldly. Why? Well, boldness comes because of his confidence in God, but also because actually he has nothing to be ashamed about, does he? The message that we're given to preach, the gospel that Paul preached, we're not to preach <clears throat> timidly or apologetically, because actually we're giving people the best news they can possibly have. We're actually helping these people. But so often we can sort of sound like a Northern Rail apology you know, announcement, you know what I mean? I'm very sorry. that That's what we can sound like sometimes when we're telling the gospel. Like we're telling somebody that they've done something wrong or, or telling people something awful. But we're actually giving people the best news that they've ever heard. And so Paul says, even though he's faced conflict, even though he's been uh, thrown in prison in the last place, he's still going to declare it boldly. And the implication for the Thessalonians in Thessalonica is that they declare it boldly too. He's saying, look, this is what I did. Even though I faced the risk of being thrown in prison, I still declared it boldly, even in the midst of conflict. So real, genuine, fruitful gospel mission declares confidently, not clandestinely. Secondly, uh, real, genuine, fruitful gospel mission pleases people, uh, pleases, no, gets right around, <laughs> pleases God, not people. Have a look at verses three to six. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul is saying, as I preached the gospel to you, I didn't preach it because I was mistaken. I didn't preach it because I wanted something from you. It wasn't because I wanted to trick you in some way. No, Paul says you can tell that what we were telling was saying was the truth by the way that we spoke it to you. He said we didn't flatter you. In other words, he didn't butter them up. You know, uh, when somebody comes up to you on the street and says, oh, you look like an intelligent person. You know, don't you, that they want something from you. It's a trick. It's a, it's a ruse, isn't it? But Paul wasn't like that. He didn't try to get money off them. Like some sort of timeshare salesman. You know, just sit through my presentation and then, you know, buy my product. Actually, he, he wasn't after their money. And we see why a bit later on. But he wasn't trying to trick them into giving him cash. He didn't even want to try and get recognition from them. Just think about it. Paul was the great apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't he? That was his mission. He'd been given this glorious mission by the Lord Jesus. But he didn't want hero worship from them. 
you know, um, you know, people sort of say, oh, well, can I, can I call you Paul? No, you must call me his worship, the right reverend, most holy apostle Paul. You know, insisting on being called big titles or big names or things. No. He didn't want recognition from them. He didn't want to just have them stroke his ego. Actually, Paul just told it them as it was, as it is. The way that Paul plainly taught them the gospel was evidence that he had no ulterior motive. He didn't trick people into believing the gospel. He didn't flatter people into hearing it. He just told them it plainly. Often it can be a big temptation, can't it, to think that we've got to give some people something extra, if you like, than the gospel. And in some cases, you know, it can be helpful. So think about it. We do pub quizzes and we say, come along. And uh, there's a quiz with a gospel talk. But we've got to be really clear, haven't we, that the gospel talk is really why that evening is going ahead in our minds. And also we need to explain it to people as they come along that that's there. Again, you know, it, it, otherwise it feels like a bit of a, an awkward moment in the evening, doesn't it? You know, this is spoiling the fun of the quiz. I remember a few years ago helping out with lunch bars uh, at the Christian Union uh, University. I don't know if you've come across lunch bars, but the basic idea was, you know, you would come along, there'd be a, a table full of food there, and you'd grab some food and you'd sit and listen to a talk on, normally an apologetics question, you know, why does God allow suffering, something like that. But I remember one time uh, during a university mission, there were a couple of people who were a bit embarrassed by the fact that it was a lunch bar. But they were desperate to get people along. So they started, you know, giving away invitations. Do you want some free food? Free lunch? Free lunch? Well, there were two outcomes to that. There were some people who came, took their free lunch and left. No gospel work done there. Some people came, got their lunch, sat down, and then suddenly this talk started. And felt like they'd been tricked. Felt like they'd been hoodwinked into hearing the gospel. And you know what? They weren't particularly that happy about that either. It wasn't as though they you know, accidentally heard it and then it was okay. They were actually quite annoyed that that had happened. But Paul was up front with the gospel. He said, look, this is what we are doing. And Paul wasn't out to make friends with that. He wasn't flattering them. Paul was out to win souls for Christ by any means possible, as long as those means were above board, honest, open, no tricks, no lies, no flattery. And he's telling them that's all they need to do. They don't need to flatter people. They don't need to trick people. What they need to do is present the gospel to people. But it was more than just what he said. The next thing that we see is that real, genuine, fruitful gospel mission shares life, not language. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you have become uh, become very dear to us. Paul here compares himself to a breastfeeding mother. Not your normal image, I imagine, of the Apostle Paul, as you sort of think about what Paul was like. But the image is there to convey an idea of gentleness, of closeness. There's a willingness in that to give of himself to them. So that he doesn't just share the gospel with them, but he shares his very self. And along with the other people who are with him, they share their very selves with these people. So there's a sharing not just of words, but of life. And this is how Paul reached them with the gospel. As he proclaimed it, he shared his life with these people. Now there's two things we've got to consider here. 
The first is actually, as Richard was telling us last week, this was actually quite a short visit. Uh, sorry, last week, two weeks ago. Uh, this is a very short visit that Paul has to the Thessalonians. It's only a matter of weeks that he's with them. So it's remarkable, if you think about it, that in that space of time, um, he managed to say, you know, you've become so very dear to us that actually you uh, were able to share uh, life together. Sometimes we can make the excuse that we just haven't had time to get close enough to people, don't we? And it does take time, don't hear me wrong. But perhaps it doesn't always take as much time as we think. Paul here, if you think about it, the way that he he comes into this town, must have shared his life effectively with virtual strangers. He opened up his life to them, even though he didn't really know them. He couldn't have possibly known them before he arrived. But here's the outcome. These strangers become very dear to him. They become like family to him. He shares his life. He opens up his life and gains a family. The other thing we need to consider is that he only stays for three weeks. What would have happened if he'd have stayed around a bit longer? So he's talking about what he did while he was there. Well, I think the expectation would be that he would have continued to share his life with them. I don't think this was sort of a short-term evangelistic ploy. You know, having just talked about trickery and hoodwinking people, it would be very weird, wouldn't it, if his plan was basically, I'll share my life with you until you become a Christian, uh, and then I'll get my life back. Uh, And then, you know, I'll ditch you now that you're saved. No, actually what we have here from Paul is not just a model of evangelism, but a model of church. Sharing life together, not just sharing words together or platitudes with each other. It's pretty hard though, isn't it? I'm not sure that we get to the same place in three years as it seems that Paul gets to in three weeks here. But it's something to aim for, isn't it? This is what Paul wants to do, share his life with other people who eventually then become his family that he shares his life with. I think one of the reasons that we find this hard is that some of us, I imagine, are are not that up for it, for various reasons. I think one of the reasons is that actually we've been hurt in the past. You know, we've tried this sort of opening ourselves to other people, and it hurts when it doesn't work, doesn't it, when people let us down. I think the other reason we don't like it is that we quite like our independence and quiet life, don't we? It's not that we don't think that we should do it, it's that we just don't really want to do it. Uh, We'd rather not, you know, we think it's there in the Bible, but it just doesn't really fit with our lifestyle. But just stop and think about that for a second. We think that the Bible is teaching us something, but we don't want to do it. Could we really apply that to any other area of our Christian life? You know, we think the Bible's teaching us how to pray, but we don't want to do it like that, so we just won't. Actually, if the Bible is teaching us this, then this is what we should do, even if we don't feel like we want to do it. I think the third reason why we don't do it is that we don't believe that the gospel should change us beyond where we are now. I think that can be one of the biggest problems. Not that we exactly would word it that we think we're already perfect, um, but that we found ways around anything that would actually challenge the way that we already live. So I was reading uh, this week, I'm going to pronounce this hopefully correctly, this <laughs> Nietzsche. I got it, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Nietzsche's biggest criticism of Christianity uh, wasn't all the sort of arguments and historical stuff and all, all that kind of thing. His biggest criticism of Christianity was that he argued that nobody lived out the Bible. That was his point. He said, look, there's all these challenging things in the Bible that should really turn people's lives around, but they don't. He was annoyed at Christians where nothing changed. 
And it's a danger that we don't change further because we essentially think we've got it all sorted. So that if something is challenging, we just assume that it's not what it means. Why? Well, because we don't already do it that way. And it's a dangerous place to be in, isn't it? Our repentance sometimes stalls at some point after our conversion. We see rapid change in our life sometimes, or you know, longer change, but at some point sometimes seems to stop. And we never finish growing up, if you like. We become Peter Pans of piety. That we think we've got it all basically sorted and the word doesn't affect us anymore. So I think really with a challenging thing like this, we need to think it through. Is it that this isn't what it's saying? Or is it that it's just not what we want to do? So real, genuine, gospel, fruitful... I'm getting adding more adjectives here. Uh, genuine, fruitful, gospel mission shares life, not just language. It's something a bit deeper. Next, uh, real, <laughs> genuine, fruitful, gospel mission, thinks giving, not getting. Have a look at verse 9. If you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul here is saying that he preached the gospel freely. Now that might not come as a big surprise to us, it's not the sort of culture that we're in that normally people peddle the gospel uh, though if you uh, watch some uh, American TV channels, you sometimes might get that idea, mightn't you? And it is becoming more a common idea that, you know, Christians are just in it for the money. But Paul is definitely not thinking that he's in it for the money, isn't he? How do we know that? Well, he's actually doing this at his own expense. He doesn't charge them for hearing the gospel. It costs him and not them. And he lets them see that. He reminds them that actually he wasn't thinking, what can I get out of this? He's actually thinking, what can I give to you? And then finally, uh, in this point, uh, real fruitful gospel ministry walks the talk and talks the walk. Have a look at verses 10 to 12. You are witnesses and God also, how righteous, holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What he's really saying here is that real gospel mission, fruitful gospel mission, is authentic. They lived out what they preached. They're able to say that their conduct was blameless. They modelled what life was like as a Christian to the Thessalonians. Now, I don't think that means that they live perfect lives. That wouldn't really fit in with the rest of what the New Testament tells us about ourselves. But part of living the Christian life is actually making mistakes, isn't it? And repenting. It is actually doing things wrong and showing how we deal with that as well. And I imagine as they, as they upset people, as they hurt people, as they did things, they showed what it looked like to repent, to turn from that as well. But what he's saying here is that all the way through this, they weren't phonies. They weren't preaching one thing and living another. They weren't hiding things from them. They declared to them the whole story, if you like, what it was like to be a Christian, not just part of the story. I don't know if you've ever been told part of a story and then discovered that actually it turned out something quite different in the end. So, you know, you read a review that says, this hotel is full of potential. And then you get there and you discover that it's full of potential because it's only half built. You know, and they've got all the building work there or... You know, again, on TripAdvisor, you might read, this city will take your breath away. And you get there and discover it's all the air pollution uh, that will take your breath away. Or, you know, this car is worth two cars. And you buy it and discover it used to be two cars. 
They get half the story. But Paul's not giving them half the story. He's telling them the whole story. As he's teaching them, he's teaching them the hard side of what it will be to be a Christian too. So he lived out what he preached, but then they also preached, if you like, what they lived out. And we're told here that Paul does it as a father to a child. Now, I don't think he really means that in a sort of condescending way, but he means that he did it in a serious kind of way. In a way that you'd talk to a son or daughter to explain to them what it's like to be a man or a woman, if you like. It's a bit like the the if poem. Uh, You know, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, it goes on. And the end, if you can uh, fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Actually, that whole poem is an exhortation of a father to his son. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's exhorting them as a father to a child. Exhorting and encouraging in the uh, in the Greek are, are things that you do alongside someone. So they're literally calling alongside, instructing alongside. It's like he's taking them through what's going on, what will happen, what it's like to live as a Christian. The last word there is literally testifying that you walk in a manner worthy. It's a much stronger word, but it's the idea of witnessing, seeing this is what's happening. So he's doing it alongside them, if you like. But he's not mincing his words either. He's doing this as a father to a son or a daughter. He's not sort of pronouncing it over them, but he's encouraging them in their Christian lives. I suppose really what we're seeing in all of this is that Paul is not a fan of easy believism. If you come across that idea, you know the idea, well, you just believe and that's it, full stop. But that's sort of half the story, isn't it? Because the gospel must and will make a difference to your life. The impression here is that it was part and parcel of what was being told to them as he was explaining the gospel. He explained what it would be to live as a Christian before and after they became Christians. That was the only way really it works in three weeks, isn't it? He told them again and again what was expected of them. And sometimes we can be a bit scared of this in gospel proclamation, can't we, as we explain the gospel to people? Because we want to say, yes, salvation is 100% free. That's absolutely right. But salvation is by faith and repentance, isn't it? And we're hot on faith, explaining it, just believe. But repentance, sometimes we can shy away from that, can't we? But if repentance means anything, it will mean that your life will change. That will not earn you your salvation, but it is part and parcel of that salvation. That's part of what you get, is that you get an escape from sin, isn't it? You start to grow out of sin. Jesus again and again exposes the unwillingness of people to repent in this way, doesn't he? As he tells the gospel. So think about it. Rich young ruler comes to him. What does Jesus say to him? Well, go and sell all that you have. Well, that's not doesn't sound like a free offer of the gospel, does it? But what he's doing is saying, actually, look, this is going to have big consequences and you're not ready for them. You're actually loving your money more than you're loving God. You're not ready to repent. You're not going to give that up. Well, think about it, the scribe that Jesus talked to, who said, oh, yeah, yeah, love, love your neighbour and love God. And but says, oh, but who is my neighbour? Seeking to justify himself. He's trying to get round it. And Jesus says, well, your enemy is potentially, so your enemy is potentially your friend and you have to love him. Well, he doesn't like that, does he? 
So Jesus isn't scared of, of explaining that actually repentance is something huge. But repentance is also an ongoing thing, isn't it? And he wants them to understand that, that we don't repent once. The whole of our lives are repentance. So if we want fruitful, genuine gospel mission, we will speak those words to people. We'll tell them that what they're signing up for. That actually the whole of your life will be repentance. The whole of your life will be change. We'll not make out that the Christian life will be easy or that grace will mean that we can sin with impunity. I don't think that's what Paul is explaining to them. We will speak about what following Christ will look like. So we'll talk the walk whilst walking the talk as well. So that's what Paul is really saying. Genuine, fruitful gospel mission is. Well, how did they receive it? Well, they received it very well. Have a look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Wouldn't you love this to be the response after Easter, you know, of, of sharing the gospel, preaching the word, that they receive it with gladness, that they take it to heart. The word of God. But before we get to that, it's worth saying, isn't it, that that's what he's doing. He's preaching the word of God. All the rest of the chapter has been talking about the gospel of God. Is there some kind of difference between the two? Well, talking to some people, you think there was a difference between the word of God and the gospel of God. I remember a few years ago having a sharp disagreement with a very respected Christian teacher about this, a very godly man. But he said that you couldn't teach the word of God to unbelievers. Gospel mission for him was not about teaching um, the Bible, if you like. It was about teaching facts about the gospel. Others would say, well, parts of the Bible, parts of the word of God are the gospel of God. You know, John 3.16, great, Romans 3. But what about Ecclesiastes? What about Proverbs? What about Genesis? But what matters in all of these is that God is speaking. If God speaks, truly speaks, then whoever we are, we will sit up. And listen, whether we're in Genesis 3 or John 3, all passages in the Bible point us to Christ, don't they? All passages lead us to uh, the same response, repent and believe. We sound weird to say, we say it slightly differently every week. But that's basically the response to the gospel, isn't it? Wherever we are in the Bible, we're called to repent and believe. So in one sense, we could preach any passage of the Bible evangelistically. So the word of God is the gospel of God, which points us to Christ and causes us to repent and believe. That's what Paul has been doing, opening up the Bible with these people. And just look at how they receive it. You see there again in verse 13. And we thank God constantly for this, that you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. They receive it as the word of God. They can see past the preacher. They can see what is truly happening. It might be Paul's mouth that's moving, but God is speaking. They grasp something really vital uh, that wasn't really expressed clearly in in Christian thought until later on, really, in the Reformation. This is what uh, Henrik, Henry, I call him Henry, that's what other people called him. Um, Henry Bullinger, or Bullinger, very difficult name. This is what he said anyway. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. I'll say that again. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now what he meant by that is not that 
the preacher is infallible. Okay? But it also means that the preacher's fallibility is never an excuse not to listen. Even with mistakes in it, as preachers preach at the front, it's God's word that's being opened up. It's God's word that's being spoken. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but do you think Paul spoke infallibly all the time? I don't think so. Certainly when he's writing scripture, so don't hear me wrong, when he's writing scripture, he, he writes infallibly. But did he ever make mistakes when he was preaching? I bet you actually Paul did as he preached his human being. Yet Paul can say here that they received his preaching for what it really is, the word of God. And sometimes we run the danger, don't we, of getting blasé with the Bible. We sort of, we just, we know it's the word of God, but we sort of forget. We can get passive with preaching, just thinking, well, this is just what we do on a Sunday. Sometimes we can even assume, I think, that we know what's going to be said in the in the sermon and just sort of switch off. Do we assume, actually, again, that we have everything right, so we don't really need to hear God speak? God has nothing to tell us anymore because we've got it all sorted. Well, the Thessalonians received the word of, words of Paul as the word of God. And they let it be at work in them. They let it change their whole lives. They received it. That's more than just that they heard it. You get the impression sometimes that people think that preaching is some sort of magic incantation. That if you just sort of sit under it, um, you'll suddenly turn into a holy person. But uh, our life doesn't change by osmosis, if you like, as we hear sermons. It's not just going in our ears. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty six. It says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus there is saying that it's possible to hear God speak and not receive the word as the word of God. Just think, oh, well, yeah, I'm not going to go away and do it. But those who receive it, receive it as the word of God. And they keep on receiving it. Do you see there at the end of the verse? Verse 13. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. He's saying here that the word is still at work in the, these believers. They keep on receiving it. I think it's almost embarrassing here. We almost want to say uh, this should be spirit. You know, the spirit continues to work in them. Uh, as they uh, as they go on, but it doesn't. It says the word, doesn't it, that's at work in them. Uh, are we sort of separating it from the spirit? Well, no, the word doesn't act independently. Word and spirit go together. The word is the sword of the spirit. Uh, the word is the spirit's word, isn't it? He inspired it. But this word, acting by the spirit, continues to be at work in them. This is not something that they leave behind uh, now that they're Christians. That might be through meditating on what they heard from Paul. But I imagine it's them continuing to hear the word afresh as it's preached and taught. They continue to receive the word because they've received the word. But they don't just receive this mission well. They repeat it well. This is our final point, repeating it well. Paul says here in verses 14 to 16 that they become like the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Let me read them to you again. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, 
by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure uh, of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Paul is saying that they have faced the same terrible persecution that the Jews have faced in Judea. But this time not from other Jews, but from other Gentiles. So he's saying they're like them because it's their fellow countrymen. It's always harder, isn't it, with persecution when it comes from the places you don't expect it. In one sense, you sort of expect, don't you, as a Christian, you might get some persecution from other religions, you know, trying to stop the gospel proclamation from happening. But what hurts more is when our own fellow Christians seem bent on stopping it. It's easier, isn't it, to take an insult or a snide remark from a stranger than it is from a friend. These were their friends and their family that were persecuting them. And it was the same for the Jews in Judea. But this is a natural effect of the gospel. It happened to them. It happened to the brothers and sisters in Judea. It happened to Paul before he turned up in Thessalonica. That's how our chapter started, wasn't it? He'd come from uh, Philippi where he'd been persecuted. Paul talks about his own countrymen here as he speaks about the Jews who are uh, driving out people from Judea. Who killed Jesus and the prophets. Who scattered the early church. Who displeased God. And who don't want the gospel to go to the Gentiles. I don't know if you've ever thought that's pretty messed up, isn't it? We don't believe the gospel, but we don't want you to tell our enemies about it either. We don't want them to have it. It's like, you know, meet people and they say, oh, I don't believe in God, but I'm very angry with him. Sort of contradictory within itself. But actually all of us can be a mess of, a mass of contradictions at times. Probably better with a mess of contradictions at time, at times. But he talks about them filling up their sins in this way. Now that might sound quite harsh, but remember he's talking about his own fellow countrymen. And Jesus himself spoke in similar ways as he spoke about his fellow people. So I put a verse in Matthew on the back there. I won't read it for the sake of time. But if you look at the end, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. He's saying fill up your sins. That's what they were doing. The wrath here that it's spoken of is the wrath at the end of time, if you like, that will be poured on them. The end of each section in Thessalonians refers to the second coming. So that would seem to be where this wrath is. So it's not the temple being destroyed or the destruction of Jerusalem. This is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, so it's not happened yet. But instead, he's talking about them as he talks about other groups that will face God's wrath at the end. So wrath is coming. Why? Well, partly because of the way here they've treated other believers. He's saying here that there will be justice for these Thessalonians, just as there will be justice for the Judeans. Just as there will be justice for the Saudi Christians, just for uh, as there will be for the North Korean Christians, the Syrian Christians, the Egyptian Christians, uh, all the other uh, groups that Nick mentioned earlier uh, in his prayers. They too have become imitators of Christians in Judea, if you like, facing hardship from their own countrymen. And the more I look upon us in the West, if you like, as church, well, in a way, we almost can't compare ourselves to these guys, can we? And yet... We do face persecutions, which can be genuinely hard. Um, and it's only going to get harder, I think. Is that because, uh, is it easier though because we're in a more tolerant society? Or is it that we don't stick our neck out as much as these Christians did and do? I imagine it's a bit of both, isn't it? But the tolerance is going uh, over time. And that can be scary. But it brings us back in line with more genuine, fruitful gospel mission. Because persecution is what genuine, fruitful 
a gospel mission produces. But persecution doesn't stop the fruitfulness. So think about it in the past. The seed sown from the blood of martyrs in England and elsewhere began huge revivals, actually, in the UK. And there's no reason to think that persecution will stop the mission. Actually, it can drive the mission. I mentioned Billy Graham at the beginning, didn't I? This is what he wrote about persecution. Persecution is one of the natural consequences of living the Christian life. It is to the Christian what growing pains are to the growing child. No pain, no development. No suffering, no glory. No struggle, no victory. No persecution. No reward. So real, genuine, fruitful gospel ministry. Well, it's all those things that we said before, isn't it? It speaks the truth. It doesn't flatter people. It keeps going. And it receives a response. But that response, well, part of it might be people receiving it as the word of God. But the other response is persecution. So as we do this, if we're really serious about fruitful gospel ministry, we've got to be prepared to endure as well. So let's pray for God's help to strength, uh, strengthen us to endure and also for people to hear and receive the word of God. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example of Paul. Father, thank you for all that he did and all that his companions did in Thessalonica. And Father, thank you for opening the hearts of the Thessalonians. Father, thank you that they heard the word of God, not just as the word of of Paul, but as the word from you. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we proclaim the gospel to our our friends, to our neighbours, to our family, uh, Father, to all sorts of different people. Father, pray that you would help us to follow Paul's example. Pray that we would notice what there is to notice in Paul's ministry and copy it. Father, pray that we would be prepared uh, for the encouragements, Father, of people hearing the truth and believing it, but also uh, for that persecution that comes alongside. Father, give us strength, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.